You have one saved voice message. To listen to your messages, press one. First saved voice message. Sent yesterday at 10.41 p.m. Welcome to Lonely Town, a killer's podcast. Today we have a special guest, Corleen Bird, who I want to give a brief introduction about. Corleen is someone who from the very beginning was involved with the band. And if you ever went to an early killer show in Vegas, you probably found out about it from a flyer that she created. If you were Rob Stevenson or Matt Pinfield trying to, to sign the band, you probably first heard about them from a demo CD that she recorded or that she burned and created the label for. And if you've seen an early picture of the killers, she probably took it. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention is that if you listen to any of the first few albums, you've heard songs that she had an influence in. So we're really excited to talk to you today, Corlaine. Thanks for, for coming on with us. Thank you for having me. So just to start, I wanted to ask about how you first got involved with the Killers. How did you uh, first meet them? So the original bass player was a customer at the guitar store that I worked at. And his name was Del. I think uh, he goes by Del Star, but his name is Del Neal. And he came into the store and let me know that his roommate's band was looking for someone that could do guitar and keyboards and that the band just happened to like all the same bands I liked. That's how I met them. I met them and we exchanged demos. They asked me to join the band days later and asked me to be in their band photo before we had even rehearsed together. And it took me a couple weeks before I realized that I didn't want to do it. Or I kind of knew it going in that I didn't want to do it, but but it took me a couple weeks to tell them that. Wow. And once I did, we just stayed friends. So the, that first picture, did you also take those pictures at that time? It depends on which pictures you're referring to. Well, there's one with the killers. looks like it was taped up on the wall. And there's one with you in it. And one, I think, that didn't have you in it. There, The one with me in it, there was a photographer there who I didn't know her at the time. And I don't even know what her name was. But um, I didn't take any official band photos until Mark was in it, I think. Well, no, that, that's not true either. This is so hard to remember <laughs> some of this stuff. But there's, I think there's a picture on my Instagram where it shows Brian and Dell in it. And I did take that one. Okay. But that was not the same one as the one in the article. So at that point, had, had Dell and the others rehearsed together? At that point... Yeah, they were with uh, Matt Norcross was the drummer. They were practicing in his garage. I don't know how long they had been rehearsing up until that point, but they had been. Dell had just joined the band when he had told me about it. And so with that original lineup, even though you didn't start playing with them, you you started from that point to to document some of the the times they played together as well? I did. I documented some of them. Some of those venues were incredibly dark, so... The, you know, the camera that I had was just like a domestic, normal, everyday camera. The quality over the last 20 years has 
degraded pretty bad. And I've tried con- to convert the tapes and whatnot, but I've, I think I put a couple clips up on my Instagram and handed some over and they ended up using it for the boy visualizer video Yeah, that went on social media. So that was, that was a recording from before or recordings from before Mark and Ronnie joined. Some of them. Yeah. There was um some that showed Dell and Matt and there's a couple, I think there's a clip in there that shows Brian on drums, but yeah, they, they included that in that. The, the segment that shows all the old footage. So your cell phone or your voicemail was kind of a idea of like, how do I say that? Repository, I guess we'll say. Was it just song ideas that they, they'd call through and leave on your, your voicemail in those early years? Or was it other ideas? Do you have any kind of uh, memories or stories about just having those kind of voicemails left on your phone? Well, it only happened once. <laughs> oh, here I thought there was lots of times. No, it yeah, only happened once. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, well, can you tell us about that one one time it happened? It's kind of it's kind of strange to get a phone call and have someone tell you that you shouldn't have picked up the phone. <laughs> and yeah, that's <laughs> that's pretty much it. I was like, from this guy's this guy's different. <laughs> He's he does things different. <laughs> but that's pretty much it. I kept it and so was it just try to delete it? Was it just a song idea? Was that kind of Brandon was just calling so he wouldn't forget something? I, I have no idea. <laughs> huh, all right. So what, the, on the recording it says you have one message that was left yesterday. So it's, it sounds like you you saved it the next day. So I was just surprised that 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 was on there. That and then and, and then it ended up getting used. So yeah, I I mean I was into um, I kept everything. I was. I had a, a little bit of a recording set up just because I was writing my own songs and whatnot. So I had a microphone and I just held the phone up to the microphone to transfer it into the eight track machine just to keep it. And I, I don't think that I showed it to them for months. They didn't even know that I had kept it. And about what do you remember about what time period that was when that, when he left that message? I don't, I know that it was late 2002. I guess there's a lot of us uh, fans of the killers that want to thank you for the the post you did on your on your Instagram last year documenting I guess the anniversaries of of, of moments that happened in 2002 uh, now that we're here 20 years later and you know some of the things you shared include uh times that the ways that you met him I, I was hoping you'd be willing to share those again I know you've already documented those but could you talk about when you met Mark and and Ronnie Oh, it's, a, it's so it's so long ago. It's so hard to remember <laughs> some of this stuff. But I, I remember meeting Ronnie at Presidio Studios when I was 18 or 16 or something like that. I was I was still in high school. And my friend, her name is Delray, was interning at the studio for I think it was Shoestring Records. And in that same building was Blackjack Records. And there were just like local labels that had a rehearsal studio that had I think eight rooms and it was attached to a warehouse and he came in to rehearse with Attaboy Skip and we were tasked with helping him get his drums up the stairs <laughs> and to us he was like you know he was Ronnie Benucci like we already knew that he was <laughs> someone special so we were a little intimidated but we're also a little delusional so <laughs> We're like, 
he's going to want to be in our band. You just wait. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't remember when I met Mark. I remember the first couple times I saw him was in Tower Records when I was working there back in the late 90s. But I don't remember the first time I talked to him. Mm-hmm. I just know that he was around quite a bit. We used to go watch his band play and you know, I don't, but I don't remember the first time I met him. Well, it's amazing to me to think about how uh, some of the reasons you got involved or, or got, or saw them the first time was uh, musical related jobs that you had at these stores. That's interesting that just the way that the, some of those things came together just revolved around everyone's love for music and I guess shared musical interests. That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's crazy because even the jobs, the way that I got the jobs was very coincidental. And my sister got me the job at Tower Records. And I had a friend who was working at Guitar Center that just happened to offer me the position. It wasn't like I was trying to get those jobs. So mm. there was a lot of coincidence that went into all of this. So what and, was the Vegas music scene like 20 years ago? Because for those of us on the outside... <laughs> I mean, I drive down to Vegas and obviously I see the strip and all these big headlining acts. And I just think this place is full of people uh, trying to entertain or, or get big. But uh, obviously there's an independent other side of, of uh, you know, like local Vegas people that, you know, don't don't go anywhere near that kind of thing. So but the track record is there's been some good bands that have came out of Vegas, uh, especially in that time frame. So what was it kind of like during that time and what's it like now? That's so difficult. Um, I I don't think about it too much. It was, I remember that there was no downtown scene yet. So have you guys been to Vegas? Are you familiar with the way it's set up? Um, I've been there a couple of times, but yeah, it's, it's so different. I think that's, what's the most different right now is that the venues back then were spread around all over town. They weren't together. Like a lot of the venues are now on Fremont street and main street there was um, really no connection between the venues. And this was before social media. So booking shows was a lot more random. The The bands that people were getting paired up with made no sense. <laughs> and the bars were, you know, they, they had stages. They were official venues, but, you know, they weren't, how do you, I don't know. <laughs> how do you say it without, without, making it sound bad it just wasn't it was it was it was different <laughs> With it, maybe music wasn't the primary purpose of the venue but they had stayed yeah yeah and i think that you know the biggest place was the hundred which the building is still standing but it's been vacant for a really long time but the scene itself was mostly heavier bands and punk bands i wasn't super around too much with going to shows until I started going to their shows. Okay. And then when you first see them, do you think uh, it's just a good local band, you knew Ronnie and stuff, or did you think there really was potential for them to break out? And I mean, nobody would see them going as far as what they've went right now, probably outside of the band. Maybe I'm wrong, but did you see them as like, Hey, this is a, this is a band that's going to take off. Or did you just think this is, you know, a nice local band. It'll be fun to hang out for a little bit. I, the first time I heard their demo, which was, that's how they, I had first heard them when we did the demo exchange. And, you know, this was quite a bit earlier than 
when Ronnie and Mark were in the band. But I remember the first time I heard that demo, I got chills. And I was in my car. <laughs> I was in my car kind of having a nervous breakdown because I was like, what is happening? Like, where did these people come from? So I was, I was pretty excited even just the first time I heard them. And having worked in the record store and just kind of being surrounded by that kind of thing at the music store, at the guitar store, I had heard quite a bit of what was going on around town and I was never super moved by it. So for me to have that kind of reaction was pretty pretty good. You still have a copy of that demo somewhere? I do. <laughs> the first demo I'm familiar with is one that I think you you printed the label for. So uh, this was obviously before that. Was that one that had Mr. Brightside on it? It did. It had uh, Mr. Brightside under the gun, replaceable and desperate. Hmm. But the first tape they gave me had some other ideas on it as well that didn't necessarily have vocals. They were just instrumental ideas. And it was just a cassette, an unmarked cassette. <laughs> that's that's crazy. Yeah, it's it's still it's still strange to me. I still can't get used to it, and it's it's still it, it's I don't know. It still feels weird for me to accept that it's real. <laughs> you know that everything actually happened, and then I didn't dream it. And I've definitely had moments where I'm like, that didn't happen. <laughs> That's the same way it was kind of for us in the beginning. We, you know, we went to high school with, with Brandon before he moved down there. And, you know, when we, we heard that Brandon Flowers was in this band or when the killers came out and, you know, I remember the first time I saw an article in the, in the newspaper, the local newspaper, well, the, the Provo newspaper that said they were going to be playing in Salt Lake. And there was a picture of him. I was like, is that, is that really the same Brandon Flowers, you know, it's not a real, her real common name, obviously. So yeah, it was kind of, because to us, you know, we didn't know he had any musical talent. We knew he liked a lot of the, you know, bands that the rest of us didn't know about. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I was on the golf team with him and, you know, sometimes he would, he'd be singing songs as he was walking around, but we had no idea that that was his, his goal or that he would ever end, end up where he has. So Definitely relatable, but yeah, I'm not. I'm not certain he knew that was his goal back then. Because mm -hmm. I think he. I don't know. Are you guys familiar with how he met uh, Trevor and Billy, and he was in a group before? I know about Blush Response, but I don't know how they met or anything like that. They worked together. I believe they worked together on the golf course. All right. And yeah, Trevor was really into synthesizers, so the the sound that they had was very new wave more electronic synth-based um stuff and from what i remember and i might be remembering wrong because i was not there when this happened but that's kind of where it came from when he realized that you know he could be a part of something and i know that there's kind of a story out there about how he went to the oasis show and that's what did it but i think that was after he had already done some backup vocals on their stuff but they were really good friends and it was, um, I don't know. I, I wish I was there when that happened, but yeah. So when, when they asked you to join, they were looking for a keyboard player. Do you think that was because Brandon didn't feel like he, he could play that role? <laughs> you know, it's funny because I think the first, 
I think the first gig they played, which was at Espresso Romo, and it was just an open mic. It was just him and Dave. And I don't recall there being a keyboard on stage. And I think it was just them two and with the guitar. And they did a couple songs. But yeah, I think th- I think the goal was that he wouldn't be trapped behind the keyboard yeah. while they were performing. So there's a, some of the early pictures from that Espresso Roma show, or <laughs> I, guess, I don't know if you want to call it a show even, just open mic night. I thought you had taken those pictures. Is that not true? Though, those are my pictures, but that show that is posted on social media is not the first show. Oh, okay. That show is, that picture was from a much later show and Dell and Brian were actually playing that show, but they cropped them out. But yeah, that wasn't from the very first show. Okay. So They played there several times, I think. So I think that was just the photo that they used to kind of show that that was where the first show was at. So you're you're working at the music store. They invite you to the band, and you decide that's not something that you want to do or, or be involved with, or, or however that works out. How do you keep in touch and keep a keep a role with the band if you tell them that no, I'm not really interested in joining, to where you get to kind of document this ride? We we became friends pretty quick. Right after I had told them I didn't want to do it, we we just decided to stay friends, and they reached out quite a bit. I'm I'm a little bit of an introvert I'm not really good at calling people and keeping in touch but they were so that was good but yeah they they needed like people on their side really I think that was probably something that pushed them to stay in touch Dave hadn't lived in Vegas for very long when that happened so I think for him it might have just been he didn't he didn't know a lot of people and I think also just the having the same taste in music did a lot for why we bonded so quickly but there was definitely something special there like we we clicked pretty naturally so we just became friends pretty quick so your friends, know, um, what yeah. roles and responsibilities did you have there in the early days i didn't have any <laughs> i didn't have any my my role is to show up they real they never asked me to do anything i just i think because i'm not social i look for stuff to keep me busy and productive just to kind of soothe my own discomfort with having to be around people. And I, I, all the stuff that I did, I did just to give myself something to do. So it wasn't, it wasn't really planned. It wasn't, yeah. you know, it was just me taking initiative to do things. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so you're, you're yeah. Little- your role was really a friend and because of that you want you wanted to help him that's yeah and it, it's funny because over the years I don't think people realize that that's how that happened because after all of that I ended up getting into band photography and doing flyers and stuff for other bands mm-hmm. but that all came from having you know that space to fail doing it <laughs> so I think I, I I was inspired enough to go back to it on my own later but yeah, I don't, I don't think I ever really had set out to do that originally. I just kind of was, it was just very, it was a very makeshift situation. It's interesting to think about how they, you probably did a lot of things they didn't think they needed to do, but because you did it, it ended up helping like, you know, creating flyers and <laughs> things like that to help, help get the word out. 
that yeah, it's it, focused on on what the, the performance coming up, but by you helping with the promotion and other things like that, you you probably really helped them out. Yeah, it was actually really fun too. I think we we enjoyed that part of it, but it's crazy to think how social media wasn't a thing yet at all. The internet was, you know, it it wasn't it wasn't much of a a way to get the word out. So. I don't know. It's so weird to think about how things were back then. If you didn't make flyers, nobody knew about your show. If you didn't walk up to people and tell them, nobody knew. Yeah. On your Instagram, you documented a trip to California to play the first show outside of Vegas, uh, is my understanding. And was that before the, the current lineup or was that still with Dell and That was with Dell and Brian. That was actually, that might've been, it was in June, I think. And Ronnie didn't start until August. So the first show that they did with Ronnie and Mark was in August. Um, but yeah, that was with Brian and Dell. And it was at the gig on Sunset. Is that where it was? I think you said Melrose. Melrose. I don't remember. But yeah, it was just it was just the old the old crew and Brandon's mom and his sister and one of his sister's friends was with us. I think one of Brandon's friends met us there. And that was it. There was no one else at that show. I think Dell's girlfriend came. But the the venue was empty. The bartenders showed up and that was nice. Wow. <laughs> but the venue was empty. It was very bizarre. When you talked about the show, I thought to, to go that far and have nobody show up would be pretty disappointing. But... It sounds like it didn't deter them. What what kind of impact do you think having a show that no one came to, how did that play into the band's history? I don't know which part of it impacted them more because I, I the thing I always remember is that it costs money that they didn't have yeah. to do that show to just, you know, to make the trip up to a different city and then to realize that how are people supposed to know who you are and to come to your show if you haven't been able to promote to those people locally, which, you know, since it was before social media, there really was no easy way to do that. And I, I kind of recall was, it was the logistics of how on earth were they going to keep doing it that way? That kind of hit them maybe more than the fact that nobody was there because it was, they were just working day jobs. There was no funds to blow into the thing. So I think that was just maybe a turning point to realize, like, if you're going to do it, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a lot of work. I think, I don't know if it was that show or not, but there were times it seems that when their name was on a marquee and it wasn't even spelled right or the the person introducing them wouldn't even say their name right. They'd call them Killers or The Killer or something like that. Yeah, the, the first show, I think the person that announced them dropped the the and that marquee and i think it just said what the killer it just yeah because yeah, they had run out of s's <laughs> so if if you look at the whole entire marquee the s's are just you know they're very careful with how they use them <laughs> but they just ran out of s's That's so i think they knew the name but they weren't worried so uh what decisions did the band make at that point to to get taken a little more seriously and to get people to start showing up at shows well, locally, they didn't really have much of a problem. It was just the, the traveling to another city that was the first and only time I can remember that nobody was there. Locally, there wasn't an issue because they they were pretty good about getting the word of mouth, you know, and family and 
friends and gradually the the crowd would grow but it, it was very gradual but it was always there but that was the only show that they had done out of town until at least the following year so they they only left town the once in 2002 yeah when we when we talked to ryan party a, a few weeks ago he he talked about a show in lawrence kansas on the hot fuss u.s tour where i think he said there were like 14 people there so even even yeah. at that point they were still you know trying to get their name out and uh, you know, once the song started hitting the ra- radio, things took off. But yeah, I mean, that was 2004, I think. And that's, you know, two years of trying to get your name out. That that shows how much persistence they, they had to have that time. Yeah. And I, I think that there was a little bit of um, the local radio stations. I, there was a local radio show. I think it was, I think it might have been called Homegrown, where they would do some local artists maybe once a week um, and they would play a couple of local songs. I forget how, what the programming was, but that helped a lot. Cause I think there was quite a few people that heard it on local radio and that helped it grow a little bit, but yeah, word of mouth was probably the most effective back then. I, I think that the crowds grew. Like when I look back at some of the old videos, it's kind of confusing because some of the venues that they played in because they were booking three or four bands a night, Um, It was hard to know who was there for them and how it was hard to know who was there because they just happened to be there. And I felt like it didn't get really packed until 2003 when they started playing tramps, you know, and it was packed in most of those rooms in 2003, but they were playing really small rooms. A lot of them. Do you remember Brandon ever bringing up Nephi or experiences of growing up uh, in Utah or anything like that um, back in those times when you guys would be talking I, I feel bad for saying this, but I really don't, I don't think he did. I think the, the word Nephi came up and I had actually heard it from his mom more than I did from him and she would mention it, but, um, but no, not really. These guys were really quiet back then. They didn't, you know, when we were all together, it was that kind of conversation was a little, maybe more sparse than just talking specifically about music, maybe. We know that you you helped record some some of the demos besides some of the volunteer work you did just as their friend. How did your role evolve as as time went on? And I guess, was there a point where you things became more official of what your role was or was it still just? I never had an official role. (laughs) Yeah, I never had an official role. And I think it was kind of I, I just I never had any kind of official role. I don't think I really wanted one. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, and that's great. I mean, I think to think that you were, I mean, it might have it might have ruined some of it to to have it be an official thing rather than, you know, you just taking initiative and uh, and doing things because then it would have felt more like a job than a, you know, just helping out and doing something you wanted to do. So. Yeah, it's funny because I remember there was a time when one of them, this was obviously before they had met Brayden, but they were kind of struggling to keep up with managing their own band it was a lot of work and I remember one of them asking they might have both asked if I would manage them and I said nope (laughs) and it just seemed I was like if you guys want to get somewhere with this that is a bad idea (laughs) (laughs) so but no I never really wanted to see any kind of official role well you were obviously trusted by them a lot what decisions did you have an influence on you think uh, most people might not know about uh, it, it, that's hard to say. Cause I don't, I feel like 
I have certain memories, but I had no way of knowing who else was weighing in. Yeah. I actually remember the day that they told me what the album name was going to be called and that they had another option and they had me pick between the two and I picked Hot Fuzz <laughs> and they asked me why. And I was like, cause the other one's just not, it's not good. And if you pick the other name, I won't be your friend anymore. And <laughs> it was, but it was moments like that. I, I'm pretty sure that like other people were weighing in on, on that kind of stuff. And I don't, I don't think I can take credit for that, but, I think the only maybe definitive corner of where something that I did stuck is the songs that I recorded with them just because they sound so different from the rest of anything else that they have. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that was just my personal taste and influence coming through. Yeah. I was really into this movement out of Germany called digital hardcore. And I don't even know how, how familiar people are with it, but it was in the nineties and there was just a lot of distortion and kind of awkward drum beats. And it was something I was really into and they did not question me when I would add that kind of stuff to their music, which was great. They just never really too controlling about how I wanted to do things. And they just, went with it so I feel like that's the thing that's stuck that's still kind of something that people can hear the difference in maybe mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with the the German influence that you're you're talking to talking about but I can definitely you know when I when I think about everything will be all right I can I can see how that relates to that song um, yeah I was into a lot of trip hop so that was part of that and I also didn't know what I was doing so it's <laughs> just we did not know those recordings were going to stick and become you know internationally available <laughs> it's yeah. it's kind of wild to think that i'm i still whenever i whenever i hear it i still feel like it's it's just so surreal to know that that became part of especially that one become part of hot fuss and you know i love that album i love it so much that it just feels so weird to know that i was a part of it <laughs> you know i mentioned some of the things at the beginning like creating flyers and documenting some of the shows what what are some of the other things that you did as their friend in those early days you burned the cds you made labels I, in all fairness dave burned most of the cds oh. <laughs> um i i helped but that was something that was something that you know he would just do yeah at home i helped when we went on that trip to california but i designed the label but then he took that and he would print them out and do a lot of that stuff but other than that I don't know one one thing I think about a lot is how I kind of felt a little bit like a help desk for them because <laughs> they would call and just talk and tell me what you know all the things that were on their mind about each other and I never told them each that they all did that <laughs> and and I it wasn't like I was a band therapist or anything but it, it wasn't it, that wasn't much of a stretch either Mm -hmm. especially before Mark and Ronnie was in, because I think once they were in, that didn't really happen anymore. But in the early days, just be, just being a friend. I don't, I, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I, I mean, it was a pretty constant thing when I look back at how much time we spent together. When we weren't working on stuff, we were going and watching other bands or talking on the phone. And it was a lot that happened in one year. So, yeah. yeah. It all kind of blends together. So how often do you go back and listen to Hot Fuss and just kind of reminisce about 
that year. Pretty regularly. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty regularly. I still love that album so much. And I still tend to listen to that earlier stuff than I do the later stuff more. I think the Sam's Town gets the most plays in my car. But but I do. I, I 2002 is extremely special and I have so much of a sentimental attachment to it that it's just kind of an escape place that my mind goes anytime I need to go back and I think that's fine (laughs) so you said that you have one of those early demo cds do you have any other uh keepsakes or or anything from that time period that you've you kept on to and that you still have I I do it's funny because when I when I went and pulled everything out of storage to do the Instagram project most of the stuff that I have is like magazines and flyers and stuff like that but I found one thing that it doesn't make any sense but the backstory I guess was was that they were going to play a show at the Skillet Cafe and right as they were about to go on Brandon was missing (laughs) and nobody knew where he was and I found him sitting in the parking lot by himself and he didn't look so good. And I just remember he looked really weak and it scared the daylights out of me. And I, and so I sat there with him and I was like, what's wrong? What's happening? And he said he didn't feel good. He didn't know if he could do the show. And I asked him if he had eaten and he said, no. And I said, why haven't you eaten? He said, I forgot. Oh. And he hadn't eaten all day. So I offered to go get him some food and he insisted on going with me, even though he was supposed to start the show. And so I asked him, I was like, well, you can't just leave. There's a room full of people waiting for you to actually start playing right now. And he said to me, what are they going to do? Start without me? (laughs) And we just laughed and we left. And I still have the Happy Meal toy from his cheeseburger Happy Meal. (laughs) I was going to ask you about McDonald's. It seems like that comes up a lot with Brandon McDonald's and Coke. Yeah. It's so funny because I I still I kept that thing because I just love that moment so much about how that show ended up probably being one of my favorite shows that they played. They sounded amazing and the energy that he had after that Happy Meal was something else. <laughs> it, it solved every problem and he was fine. He was perfectly fine. All he needed was a Happy Meal. That's funny because we and ne- there's no there's no McDonald's in Nephi, so we wouldn't have to wait to get it. And maybe that's how that happened. Maybe he, it was a big deal. He was so deprived or it was such a special thing to get. <laughs> that's so <laughs> funny. Happen. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And when I think back to when we went to their, their Battleborn tour show, uh, we went thinking, oh, he's going to, since we're in, since we're in Utah, he's going to say something about, about Nephi. And the only thing he said about Utah even was the, the venue we were in, uh, in a town called Orem. He said, the McDonald's across the street is the first time I had a quarter pounder or something like that. <laughs> the comedy made was about McDonald's. So that's funny. Oh man, I had I do remember when we went to that LA trip, one of my favorite things he's ever said came out of the after we got the bill and we ate sushi that night. And he saw the bill. And we I mean, we would go, you know, eat after shows, but I think because there was several people at that table, the bill came out a little larger than we were expecting and he looked at it and he says i could have bought 60 cheeseburgers <laughs> and so funny yeah i think mcdonald's and coke uh have missed out on a spokesman that they probably <laughs> for a fairly fairly affordable price. so true 
is there something from that time period that you're you're most proud of? Either something you influenced or something you saw from them that you were a witness to, I guess. Uh, not, I mean, not specifically. I think the the whole entire thing just for me it just registers as a big deal for me personally. I think there was um, I think one of the points that I had tried to make pretty clear when I was doing the Instagram project was that this was an unusual thing for me to stick with people like that. And I think that might be where I was the most proud is that I, I allowed myself to get close to people and be friends with people and, you know, bond in a way that I really hadn't in the past. I had friends that liked music and whatnot, but this was something completely different where it was out of my comfort zone. So maybe that, but otherwise just, I mean, I'm just proud of the whole thing was pretty insane. A lot happened in a very short amount of time. Well, you should be proud. I mean, you were, you were a pretty good friend to go and do all this for them, uh, especially with no official role or title. I'm, I'm guessing that they weren't paying you or anything to do that. So just to show up and, uh, and do all this, I mean, it's not hard work, but it's work that needs to be done, you know, going to the shows and supporting them. That's, that's a pretty good thing to do for somebody that doesn't see themselves as being a, a real outgoing person from what you kind of told us earlier. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a self-soothing thing. Cause I think even after that, when I got into photography, I, I feel more comfortable having my camera with me if I go into a venue full of people, because mm-hmm. I don't know how to be a person <laughs> and it's just socializing has never felt natural to me. So I kind of hide behind that stuff. So I think um, it helped us both in that way. But I do remember that when I first started wanting to help out, Dave took to it really well, but but Brandon didn't. And he pushed back a couple times because he didn't understand why I needed to do anything. And he just wanted me to show up. And I think a couple times when I would take pictures, he just, he didn't understand why I was so invested in wanting to, work just as hard as they were or you know maybe not as hard but put myself into it do you remember early shows or or early times with the the current lineup when they they finally all got together any members of that or any members memories of of how it was different that once they had the current lineup it was incredibly different trying to how do, how do I answer that that's it was different in the I still remember there was suddenly it seemed like an overnight thing but i'm sure it wasn't where there was just suddenly a lot more people needing to be friends with them that i felt like that was kind of something that happened after ronnie and mark joined Hmm. and that to me was maybe the most different just because the environment shifted and it felt like suddenly they were just maybe i don't know it i don't know i may not know how to how to finish that that question (laughs) but it it because I think for me it was it was pretty overwhelming the ship was overwhelming and suddenly there were so many new faces I couldn't keep up with anyone's names couldn't keep up with anybody and who they were and whatnot and it was it was a bit intimidating because it seemed to happen pretty quickly because it it wasn't like that until 2003 probably there was a Rolling Stone article that came out that you were uh there's a quote where Brandon talks about how you're a talented musician and that you're going to make it big someday. When you first read that, 
what were your thoughts and feelings reading that in the Rolling Stone magazine? It's still surreal to know that happened. He had kind of told me that was going to happen. At some point, he reached out and told me he was trying to get that to happen. But some time had passed before it actually did. But he that was just something he wanted to do. He was maybe looking for ways to, to I don't know, to I don't know if it was to help me or what. It's just, it's confusing though, because I wasn't actively pushing to do music professionally for myself. And I think I felt like I was expected to. So I did try for a while, but it wasn't because I really wanted to. Are you still doing any music at all? This is a side project or hobby? No, not, I mean, not currently. I did a couple of years ago and just made some stuff, but I only released it to like friends and I never even, you know, fully finished it, but I haven't played in any bands or anything like that for well over a decade. You made it sound like you were thinking about writing a book when you were posting last year. Is that something that you're, you're going to pursue? I definitely have been writing a ton. I've been writing a lot. I, I would even say most of it's already written. Whether or not I've put it out as like an official book or if I just end up uploading it somewhere to make it available for people to read or, or maybe I don't know I might might do a podcast just to have some kind of audio version of it but it'll come out in some format I'm just not entirely certain what's going to be the best for it I, I kind of love the idea of uh, having it something that I can update as I think of more stuff I feel like the thing that's intimidating me about doing a book is that it it feels like it has to be all final and then yeah. you can't go back and add stuff and change stuff and that that does feel a little weird but it will come out something will come out i want to share the story so bad i've yeah. i've been thinking about this stuff so much in the last 20 years and the more i think about it the more i just kind of feel like the fans that have followed them for so long will get a kick out of the stories well, for sure i can only imagine the the stories and everything that took place in that year for those people that that might not be following you or, or know of your story how is instagram the best place or what social media would be good places for for fans to go and, and check out your stories and what you've been doing um that instagram's probably the only one really i'm not really active on anything else right now but yeah, the the last year's posts were all dedicated to 2002, and I try to keep it in context of the chronology of how it happened, and that was so fun. It was really fun to think about some of that old stuff, and it seemed like people didn't people enjoyed it, so it was therapeutic. It was <laughs> nice. There's definitely a lot of uh, early footage and probably unseen, or and I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you have a lot of. Uh, items and things on there that a lot of people I mean didn't even know existed so yeah I think that was another it was another big part of it for me is that I had been holding on to that stuff kind of with the hopes that some of that would be eventually something that they can use or share to show people what it was like in the beginning and then that didn't ever really happen but then it kind of felt awkward to just have it for myself yeah. it seemed unfair there's so many people that love them yeah, so I just, I wanted to share some of it because I wanted to go back and look at it and I figured if I'm going to do it, I might as well let people into it a little bit. Well, we, we appreciate it. I could see how it would be easy to see that as as things that, you know, recordings that you took 
little pictures that you took and you know it's just personal things remembrances of of the, the things you did for them so we're we're really grateful that you shared that with us because you don't owe it to us by any means so thank you for doing that well i'm i'm just grateful for you guys i think the just knowing that people are still invested and excited about them and love them this you know this much 20 years later I, when, when nobody could have ever predicted that and it's so surreal that i i still feel really i have a hard time understanding what happened so <laughs> but i appreciate you guys a ton i've i've checked out quite a few episodes and have been enjoying it and there's been a couple other podcasts that have come up that have done a really great job and people putting their time into keeping track of all this stuff. It's, it's just so cool. I don't know. You were there. I understand at the Palms for at least part of the recording of Sam's town. Do you have any, anything you can share about, about that album that we could, that would be of interest now that we're talking about that in our podcast? I mean, for me, the just how surreal it was to be in a room with flood and Alan Mulder. It's still, of all the things that have happened in the last 20 years, that one's still really high up on the charts for me to understand that it was even real because they were my heroes. Personally, you know, people were maybe a little bit more inclined to be fascinated by songwriters and whatnot, but I, because I had an interest in just production yeah, and they were just, to me, they were, I, it was, I couldn't believe that they were in the room. <laughs> and so I think a lot of what I remember from that time period is that I was probably paying more attention to those guys than I was the band. Just, I was just fascinated by their presence. <laughs> it was neat. It was really neat. I brought up Pressure Machine. I think, what thoughts did you have about that? It's kind of a change in, in sound. Is that one that you ever listened to now that it's been out? I have listened to it. I, I tend to go for the abridged. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I mean, he, they did such a good job. It's a, it's a beautiful album. I can absolutely see why people love it. And it's, it means so much to so many people. And I love that about it. I think that's so neat that I remember watching or listening to an interview where he had mentioned that it was maybe the most fulfilling thing he's ever written. And that just made me feel just good. I just felt so good hearing that because it's songwriting is weird. I think I gravitate towards Sleepwalker. Mm -hmm. I love that one. That's probably my favorite. But yeah, like I was saying, I don't really listen to it as much as some of the older stuff. Yeah. I think I probably listening to, I listened to Imploding the Mirage a little bit more in the last two. But it's not because I don't think that Pressure Machine isn't great because it is. It's just, it maybe isn't my speed. Sure. Thing you want to share about when when Sawdust came out, uh, that was a showcase for a lot of the early work that didn't make the cut for further things and things that you were involved in. I think that the weirdest part is the Lou Reed thing. <laughs> like it just added to the. It. I don't know. I keep using the word surreal, but it just. I. I think it's so strange that it just doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem real at all. And when they had asked. They had reached out and asked for uh, Leave the Bourbon and for Show You How. I, I think they actually might have already had that one, but they asked for Leave the Bourbon to be added to it. And I didn't really know what it was for. 
And I, but I never questioned them if they asked me for something, I just did it. And I didn't know what it was for. And when it came out, there was a part of me maybe that just wished that more people maybe listen to it. I don't, I don't know if that's the right way to word that, but I realize it's not an official album and whatnot, but it is still so good. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is just so good. And I still love it. Do you guys listen to it? On occasion. I... Yeah, every once in a while. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who, you know, now that we've become more involved in some of the the fan pages and Reddits and things like that, we see there's there's still a lot of people that, that long for the hot fuss days. And I think Sawdust... I don't know, would you categorize it as, as close as you can come since a lot of it was from the same time period? Is that fair? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I would say that's fair. Yeah, I guess I'm surprised that it doesn't get more love since there's so many fans of Hot Fuss. And maybe because not all the recordings are, you know, as polished as some of the others, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think there's people a lot probably, of gems. People probably more view it as the B-sides and, and, and things that weren't good enough to make the cut. Uh, in in their minds or opinions, but I think I mean you just can't have an album with you know forty songs or whatever you want on there. So I think there's a lot of good stuff on there. Uh, I know some people that is their favorite uh, album. I don't know if that's just trying to be the the cool person to prove that you know more than everyone else, or if that's that's true. But I think Sawdust has some some hidden gems that probably a lot of people haven't even really listened to or haven't listened to in a long time. So yeah, I think I mean it's so great because it's funny I. I can get a little caught up in trying to understand who's gravitating more towards what. And it is kind of wild to think that I think the unanimous thing that I've heard is that even the stuff that may not be people's favorite is still really, really good. And I don't think that you can say that about every band and, you know, the stuff that there's that isn't getting as much love is still so, so good. So I love that. Yeah, you still, uh, you still ever go and catch shows? It sounds like you've kept up with them as far as following new albums and stuff. Do you ever uh, go out when they're in town and just catch a show or anything like that? Or I don't. <laughs> Those days are gone. Um, no, I really, I really don't. I, I went to so many shows when I was younger and I was working at the music stores, and but no, I don't, I don't go anymore. I've seen that you have contributed to Mark and Ted's solo projects. Can you talk about your involvement in those? I, I think that it was, I mean, it was mostly designed with, with Ted's, which I think we did last year. He just had me do just, just layout stuff. Sheena had taken the band for, or not the band for the album cover. Mm-hmm. And that was already done. She had already, she completed the cover. She put the, the text on it and whatnot. And he just needed me to help him get the stuff ready for the manufacturer and then we had so much fun figuring out the t-shirts and the tote bag and it had been a while since I had done something like that and it was a he's just he's so good at the way he's been promoting his stuff and reminding people to listen to it and using Instagram I just loved how you know he shows the album in every location that (laughs) he goes as though it's traveling and it has its own life I just love that so much but no he's He's someone I've I've known him for. I met him a long time. I don't remember when I met him, but was he, he an just, Attaboy he, Skip with Ronnie? He was. He was an Attaboy Skip, and I kept I've kept in touch with him pretty sporadically over the years. But he just kind of feels like family to me. 
and I just love him to death. And same goes for Mark. I just, you know, working with him just, it feels very familiar, even though working with him on solo stuff was probably the first time I ever worked with him one-on-one on anything. And both of those guys are just incredibly, they're pretty intense with how fast their brains work and how fast their ideas come. And I think with Mark, I just really appreciated how invested he was and the whole entire, like every aspect of everything he was, he, he wanted to, you know, have full investment in the videos and the way things were being, you know, presented and the artwork and for dark arts, the photo that is the cover is a picture he took, which I don't, he wasn't, that wasn't initially what was supposed to happen, but it's such a cool picture. And he was really into it. He, you know, he wanted to make stuff really bad. I think, I guess that's one thing to answer your earlier question. Like if there's something that I would want to add maybe to just everything is that both Dave and Mark, um, when they went to their solo projects, they just had so much to give and they were so into it and they were, you know, so, invested and so dedicated to what they were doing it was just it was so cool it was so cool to see them excited again so yeah it was nice to it was nice to be around that because even with Dave when he was doing his first solo stuff I was back in touch with him and it felt like 2002 again just because of the way that we were talking about his plans for what he wanted to do and just different ideas and I got a little bit of a glimpse into that and it was just, it was so exciting. It was really neat. Well, that's cool that they, when they needed help with those things that they, they thought of you. Yeah. And it, and it came very natural for me to tell them what to do. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they necessarily listened to me, but it does, it does kind of, I don't know. I'm just very used to that with them. That's cool. So uh, I also wanted to ask about, work you did or help help you gave on ryan's halloween town album how did you find out about that (laughs) well i think it's on um it's either on all music or discogs or somewhere that's so funny that that has the credits for everything that ever existed it's got you listed on there i think it's either something to do with the cover or something with the artwork or design yeah i think i think part of the reason i ask is because i'm not even sure which one you're referring to? I was in Halloween Town for a while. Yeah. Um, it was maybe a short while, but I was playing keys in Halloween Town in the beginning, and then later after I had quit, I helped him with some of the graphics and just layouts and stuff like that. And one of my favorite memories of that whole thing was he wanted to do these like handcrafted covers, and he went and bought um, like felt and hot glue and we just sat in the backyard and handmade these cd sleeves to pass out um so anybody who bought the cd had these like handcrafted by ryan party customized sleeves out of felt and i just thought was that was so cool did you spend a lot of time at the uh the coffee shop with ryan nope i didn't even know him back then i met him i met him later than everyone and me and him probably came friends closer to like 2005 so even though he was around and he was DJing I never spoke to him until years later 
and then Halloween Town was around like 2007, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about that I guess is related to to our podcast in that they have a lot of Utah ties is Imagine Dragons. It seems like I've seen a few things where you were with them from the beginning, or you were you had some involvement with them in the inception of their band. Can you talk about your your involvement with them? Uh, yeah, I th I'll, yeah, you're going to probably going to have to need to stop me a little bit because I don't want to rattle on too much because I realize this is not a Dragons podcast, but, but um, I met Dan when he was still a teenager wow. and I met him through his brother, Robert, and Dan was actually kind of volunteered by his brother to help me with my music and so Robert was trying to help me put a band together. I think it was like 2004. And he, we were looking for band members and whatnot to, to be my backup band. And it was a little frustrating because I think because of the kind of music I wanted to do, it was a little hard to find people that understood the idea of having like beats with actual, like more classic songwriting. Mm -hmm. So he volunteered his brother who just happened to be Dan Reynolds <laughs> and that's still it's still so strange like that's just that's a whole other thing to see to see this happen twice <laughs> like no like I don't I don't I don't get it <laughs> the common denominator and all this magic happening it's yeah. awesome yeah it, it's just funny because like it was such a normal thing and I just remember you know, Robert would, ha Dan would sit and play the drums when there was nobody to do that. And he recorded our practices and we were, he was going to engineer a demo until I realized that I didn't really want to be in a band again, even though I never wanted to do it. I just kept, you know, kind of falling under the pressure of feeling like I needed to do it. But um, he helped with that. And then he taught me how to use some softwares he was great I love him so much Dan means the absolute world to me he was so helpful and he's such a good person and he's such a warm person and I he feels like my brother like there's no relation there but he he helped me out a lot and then when he um right before he went on his mission he played a backyard show with me at our friend Marianne's house and I invited him and asked him to play some songs and he was really, really nervous. And he was like, I don't know if I could do it. And he was sweating and it was so cute. And I kind of just needed him to do it because he was so good at what he did. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to pull myself back in because I can go on for another hour about mm -hmm. those kids. But, but yeah, he went on his mission and when he came back, he had a band so I didn't even know what they sounded like before I just agreed to help them because it was a lot of it was just payback for the fact that he had already put so much time into me. So I just love him so much. Yeah, that Reynolds family's got some talent. <laughs> yeah, um, the whole family. Oh, my goodness. That family is, you know, mm. so it's just so much love in that house. And it just... It's so beautiful to me, but it's also, it feels kind of, that's a whole different kind of surreal. They're great. I had a class at BYU with Mac. And the only reason I knew who he was is uh, because he had 
where he served his mission with my sister in England and she had, I don't know. I don't know how I knew who he was, but at the time I knew him, I knew that his brother was the manager for the killers. So, you know, I talked to him once or twice, but yeah, now he's, he's managing Imagine Dragons, I think. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He's, he works so hard and me and Mac worked together. Once um, the dragons became a thing, Mac was my, my main point of contact for all that stuff. And he's so easy to work with and he's the nicest person and he just feels like a brother to me. And, you know, they just, it, I don't know. It, it was a very easy thing to do. It was very, it was extremely natural to like want to help them out. And I, I put my whole entire self into that thing, even though I had no idea what I was doing again, but I just love Dan a lot. And I love Mac a lot. And I love Robert a lot. And her parents are amazing and Harry's great. And it's just the whole family is, <laughs> is special to me. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like there's a lot more there, but yeah, we'll, uh, yeah. Thanks for, for sharing that. No, thank you for asking about it. It's funny. Cause I, maybe I, that's what I wonder. I wonder if people realize that there's, I think people assume that there might be ties between the two bands because of the, the Reynolds and I've never, I don't know. It's such a weird, it's such a weird coincidence that it happened the way that it did. But I really, I personally feel like it's more of a coincidence. Yeah, with with the Reynolds both being from Vegas and stuff, I think, and then you had the the religion crossover in there. I think people would think there's more more to it than what there actually is. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's all our questions. We really appreciate you coming on and taking time with us. I really appreciate you guys doing all this. It's so cool that you guys put so much time and dedication into it. This is Corlin Bird, and that's another episode down from Lonely Town. First of all, I want to thank Corleen Bird. Where is she? Corleen, raise your hand. Don't be shy. Where is she? Where's Corleen? She's on the balcony. Can we get a spotlight up on the balcony? Sorry, I can't see that. Where's Corleen? There she is, there she is. Corleen, stand up. Stand up. This is Corleen Bird. No, 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 you can't sit down, you can't sit down. Everybody needs to just take a minute to appreciate Corleen the Machine. When I was 14, 15 years old, she even let me come over and record her band. And I was so nervous. I was on Cakewalk and I didn't know what I was doing, but I tried to pretend like I did. And she had these incredible songs. And, uh, you know, and then when we started this band, she's this incredible artist and photographer. She took all our pictures and did it all for a long time and just sat in the background and has never said a word. It's just like her to sit right back down. She doesn't ever want the spotlight. Corleen, we love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all your work. You're incredible, we love you.